As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and while the FIA is revisiting Lewis Hamilton's track-crossing antics in Qatar, Mercedes prepares to deploy a potentially significant upgrade in this weekend's United States Grand Prix. So what can we expect from the Silver Arrows, and is Hamilton being singled out because of his role model status? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Ben Anderson and Glenn Freeman. Well, Ben, once again, playing the role of Scott Mitchell-Malm, how's this extended stint working for you? Yeah, very enjoyable. So was he was he your first choice? For this podcast, well, Scott's always the first choice, but you've you've oh. got a couple of weeks while he's off on his. Hang on, I uh, thought we established that I was the lead driver in the well, last podcast that I recorded with Scott. Well, that's that that's when two. we have both of you together. All right, if, okay. then if it's one or the other, so it, it switches depending on circumstances. It's very complicated. Okay. This uh, this art of of uh, oh, we need to look at the contracts. I think <laughs> exactly, but uh, yeah, well, we've got equal status on this podcast. Of course, Lovely. we've got Glenn Freeman dropping in, who actually has uh, dominion over us all as uh, as editor He's like the team the boss driver. Team. It's like Christian Horner deciding to race again against Max Verstappen. <laughs> Do you feel like Christian Horner, Glenn? Um, I'm probably not as rich as him. Um, I'd probably put up about <laughs> as good a fight against Max Verstappen now as he probably could. Um, but I didn't get quite as far in my burgeoning racing career as he did, so... Uh, yeah, and I and I haven't done. Uh, I, I didn't do a naked photo shoot uh, in my twenties, so I'm not quite living his life, am I? <laughs> There's still time, Glenn. <laughs> the question is, could you beat Pedro de la Rosa to a British Formula Renault race win at Pembrey? That's the uh, that's the big question. If Pedro's up for it, I'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have a bit of age on your side there. Although I reckon uh, Pedro's probably still uh, still quite handy. I know he still does bits of karting. Let's ask Fernando to call him. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, uh, they often do little karting things and endurance karting and all that sort of nonsense. So uh, yeah, they're both in that world. Anyway, we've digressed massively there, so we'll get back on track now by asking you, Glenn, about the FIA's slightly curious statement 
about revisiting Lewis Hamilton's crossing the track offence in Qatar. Can you just explain what that's all about? I'm going to try, and to do that, <laughs> I have I've had to pull the statement up because it's yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. Uh, so they they want to they want to revisit. Um, the incident of Lewis crossing the track at Qatar after he, after uh, his crash at the first corner, uh, he obviously walked back across the track. From a from his perspective, I can see why he's gone. The pits are right there. I don't want to have to get on a scooter around the edge of the track and find a bridge and all that nonsense. So, understandable, but not allowed, and, and for good reason. Like yes, things were under control. Uh, the track would have been empty at that time. Everyone's behind a safety car, uh, but. You know, you, you don't want to make allowances here. So all of that's fine. Where where this statement goes completely awry is the bit at the end um, where it says, uh, however, in view of his role model status, the FIA is concerned about the impression his actions may have created on younger drivers. So looking at that at face value, it does sound like Lewis Hamilton is a role model. Therefore, we are going to have to take that status into account when deciding how to punish him for an offence like this. My understanding, and this is through your work on it, Ed, is that that's not what they meant. So it's come off terribly and it has been really badly handled, but it wasn't the intention. And tell me if I've got this wrong, Ed, but what they basically meant was F1 drivers are role models so we have to clamp down on this stuff because we don't want people at lower levels, be that karting or all the way up the ladder, thinking that if you fall off, at, say, at the start of a race or any point of a race and you're stood in a gravel trap on the outside of the corner, you can go, oh, I'm going to cross the track because Lewis Hamilton's going to do it. That's understandable. The statement they sent out doesn't convey that at all. And unfortunately, it's just the latest example of... <laughs> The FIA handling something quite straightforward, absolutely terribly. Yeah, certainly their belief is that all F1 drivers are role models. Which is they fine. They didn't say that in the statement because they focused it purely on Hamilton. They also don't even want to give Hamilton a bigger penalty, which makes sense. That it's, This is all about just having a look at it as a case study for future punishments That's and that fine. kind of thing. Both of those things are fine. So why you'd put out a statement that, <laughs> say that. doesn't say that, <laughs> that appears to single out Hamilton, that... That implies well, it, more than it, it, say, it says revisiting. So that I think any reasonable person would say that they're looking at changing the punishment or upping the punishment from a reprimand and a fine, half of which was suspended. So it's really odd because like the FIA's got a little bit better at this kind of communication thing, but this was really odd because the whole point of a statement is to make your position clear, and they represented what wasn't their position. So of course they've quite rightly got criticism for it and it's turned what's actually quite a sensible initiative because i think yeah because because the offense you can cross the track if you have permission from marshals that's what hamilton didn't have and that's quite an important rule because the drivers going across yeah they can they can use the green cross crowd and make sure they look <laughs> and everything but you never know what's going on so it's a sensible thing to have in place and a sensible thing to come down on and i think it probably should be treated seriously but You've got this perfectly sensible thing. If they said, "Well, we were thinking about this thing, and maybe for the future we might want to clamp down on a bit on a bit aware that all F1 drivers are role models, so let's tidy that up." Great, but they didn't. They said something that looked completely different and switched the whole conversation to making it look like they were targeting Hamilton. Entirely their own fault. I think it's pointless posturing, isn't it? Like, was seriously any 
person watching that race thinking, oh, Lewis crossed the track. I'm going to do that next time. I don't think anyone even noticed until the FIA itself drew attention to it. And he was summoned to the stewards. The stewards spoke to him. Like you said, Ed, you got a reprimand, 50k fine, half of it suspended. It's dealt with. So the FIA is now saying, oh, actually, no, we didn't do a good enough job in dealing with that. We need to look at it again. And then you draw unnecessary attention to it. And then on top of that, you botch the statement and make it look like you're targeting F1's most famous driver individually rather than looking at the actual specifics of when should you cost a track? How should you do it? Should we up the punishments or not? All the publicity was completely unnecessary. They could have done that revision uh, behind closed doors, which they often do with some minor rule tweaks. So I don't get it. It just looks like a, uh, a silly mess created by the FAA unnecessarily. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. It's just very odd. You take something very sensible and simple and it's been it's been turned into something else because nothing wrong with using that as a case study and there have been instances of this sort of thing before. And it's strange really because usually these sort of safety things, people say, oh, they sound a little bit sort of like, like they're over- overdoing it, being a little bit too uh, jobsworthy about it. But these are significant safety things. And I think it's absolutely right to do that. There's a great example at Singapore some years ago when Weber was done for getting a lift on Alonso's car and he re-entered the track without permission to do that and got a penalty for it and it sounded a bit stupid but I remember they didn't make this public but they showed some CCTV footage of it just in the media centre so we could understand it and you looked in like actually yeah that makes perfect sense because you see he's boarding a car while there's cars okay on a slowdown lap coming past very close to because he walked onto the track to get onto Alonso's car and it just it's just that sensible thing just just apply the safety sensibly and then communicate it to people but yeah got it wrong very very odd but it's been quite a statement happy time isn't it because we had the whole Lance Stroll having to apologize to the FIA compliance officer and being warned about his conduct obviously Ben you wrote quite a bit on that during the Qatar weekend yeah again I thought it's slightly strange they put out a statement initially saying that it's gone to the compliance officer and then you get the statement saying they've taken the action so it's it's a statement happy week for the (laughs) FIA yeah, they must have been bored or something. I mean, I think in the Stroll case, it it's a neat full stop on it. I think something something needed to be done or some acknowledgement needed to be made that his behaviour crossed the line and he or the team needed to accept that. That was the one thing missing from the, the rolling coverage of it in Weekend. There was a sort of attempt to kind of laugh it off. Um, you can look at it two ways. Some people think it was blown out of proportion some people think it's an unacceptable thing to do to colleagues, however well you know them in the workplace. But at the end of the weekend, when we spoke to Mike Crack in his regular media session, he kind of didn't really explain how they were going to deal with it properly in terms of a process from Aston Martin or modifying Lance's behaviour in the future or just sitting down with him and saying, look, you know, we get that you're frustrated, you got angry in the moment, but this is how you need to deal with it better next time. He defaulted to kind of, ah, oh, it's just an adrenaline junky moment. Everyone wakes up calmer the next day, let's forget about it. And I don't think, given how visible it was, and again, you know, in relation to the Hamilton thing, this was very obviously setting a bad example during prime time TV F1 coverage. Role models. I don't, sorry? Role models. Role models, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that was, everyone saw that, you know, Lewis managed to cross the track almost in secret, but everyone saw Lance shove his trainer and get stroppy. I think Aston needed to to lay out how they were going to deal with it, or at least say, yes, we are going to have some conversations behind the scenes. And they didn't do that. 
Um, so the FIA has kind of stepped in. Also, the FIA didn't deal with the incident in weekend either wasn't referred to them or they didn't decide to look into it themselves. So I think there was collectively a bit of cleaning up of mess that needed to be done post Qatar on that incident. I think we all know, we all know why Aston Martin were trying not to deal with it, don't we? Mike Crack's not going <laughs> to say, yeah, I'm going to come down really hard on the boss's son and hope that I keep my job. Um, no. My, okay, we've got the apology from Stroll, but my concern here is that I think there's every chance this could happen again, but just around the back of the garage where there's not cameras. The only reason this is a thing is because he did it in view of a TV camera. And he only just did it in view of a TV camera. We sort of had to piece together the bits we couldn't see because people were in the way. So it's that classic, it's only become an issue because he got caught. And my concern is that, I'm not saying that Lance has a horrendous temper and is always going around shoving his own team members, but there's a chance this will happen again with him or with any other driver out of view of um, of the public. And like you said, Ben, I found this really interesting. I really liked the way you, and I think from the transcript that I saw, it's Autosports Matt Q as well, kind of gave Lance a hard time about it. And the team tried to shut it down. And you guys sort of said, well, no, this this, this has to be, discussed Lance has to answer these questions and as far as I could tell he was okay with that I think he felt he had yeah to be to be fair to him he shut the PR yeah. down himself you know the, the PR handler said oh that's too many questions about yesterday and he was like no no and he just stared <laughs> Matthew in the face and said yeah, got another so question it, but in a quite even way he wasn't yeah. threatening he was just prepared yeah, exactly. to face like, up if you're to brave it, enough but... to ask the questions I'm going to be brave enough to answer them and obviously yeah. Compared to what we saw on TV, his interview on TV the day before, which was appalling, it's it's good that he fronted up a day later. That reflects okay on him. But yeah, yeah, I just think that just it just fits that attitude of this team, doesn't it? That Lance can do no wrong, and when he does wrong, there won't be any consequences for him. And we all know why there won't yeah. be any consequences. I heard a really interesting rumor the other day that someone passed on to me which makes sense when you think about it and that is that pretty much all the employees in that team have bonuses based on their constructors championship position and the higher up the championship they go the bigger the steps between those bonuses are so there is a kind of underlying frustration with the Lance Stroll situation in that team because you've only got to look at his points total and Fernando Alonso's points total and you can see the the rank and file of that team, the people who are on normal money, the people who have normal mortgages and bills to pay and all that sort of thing, they are going to be out of pocket at the end of this year because of Lance Stroll's colossal underperformance. So I think there's a troubling... The troubles are building here. There's the undertone of, of difficulty around Lance is, is only building. And that's why, like you, I didn't like how the team was trying to publicly handle this at the time. They seem to be trying to sweep it away. And... Lance has got enough going against him as it is with the whole boss's something. Even when he's doing well, that is levelled against him. When things yeah. are going badly, he can't look like he's protected because of that. No, I have to be careful with uh, Aston Martin Stroll-related rumours after copping heat from Sky's David Croft over the Lance Stroll to quit Formula 1 for tennis rumour that I didn't start, but nevertheless got picked up massively on one of the podcasts we did recently but regardless let's start of... another one which sport should we put him in this time <laughs> bobsleigh i think he's going to do canadian bobsleigh curling that's quite popular in canada Ooh, yeah. yeah um 
I I think that I I agree with you. I think there is this uh, element of the Aston Martin personnel kind of treading on eggshells around Caution. Stroll, but I don't think they need to. I think Stroll himself is more reasonable than that, and the way he interacted with Lance. us, Lance himself, yes, uh, the way he interacted with us the day after that incident and was prepared to face questions and front up a bit. I think that they could guide him. You know, that he still needs it. He's still a young guy. Okay, he's been in F1 for a long time. But clearly there are rough edges that need to be smoothed out, both in the driving and, in this case, the behaviour. He can be moulded. He can be shaped. It needs some strong... He needs strong people around him to help him get better. And that's not going to happen if the people whose jobs it is to do that feel like they can't do it. And I'm not blaming them. Like, it is a difficult situation. But maybe they can shift the dial slightly back towards, hey, come on, Lance, you know, let's focus here. This isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. Let's sort it out. Crack has a responsibility as a team principal to look after the team's interests. And if his drivers overstep the bounds, he has to deal with that and say something. He can't just laugh it off okay you can say this was quite minor in terms of its consequences and it was all in-house but there might be other flashpoints that happen that are a bigger deal you know what if Lance has a clash with somebody outside the Aston Martin tent or does something you know has a complete brain fade and does something worse you you can't just have the same reaction you're going to have to deal with it so I'm not saying that would happen but I, I do think uh, they they don't need to treat Lance with kid gloves it's actually another example, just like the Hamilton crossing the track thing, where actually the handling of it magnified it into something bigger than it was. Yeah, I don't think Lance should be completely let off how he reacted, but equally, you can understand how it happened, and it's one of those things, you take a bit of action, show it's been dealt with, and that's that's fine, everyone moves on. But there was almost this, other than Lance actually being quite happy to take questions on it the next day, it wasn't dealt that well with the team. There may be another slight complication there in that I assume, because it was Henry Howe, wasn't it, who who he pushed, who's his osteopath and performance coach. And I presume he's employed by probably Lance Stroll direct rather than by the team, but he is in the Aston Martin garage and sort of their responsibility. So there may also have been a little bit... Wearing of, the kit. Yeah, there may also have been a little bit of unease there about... We, we saw with the whole Red Bull thing with Marco not being a Red Bull racing employee. So Horner had to be a bit careful about what he said because you, you have to consider all these these domains. But it, it, it was odd. It, it just made a bit more of a mountain out of what... But they didn't explain that, did they? You know, Horner was no, able no, to duck didn't. it by saying, look, you know, I I get it's a problem, but it's not our problem and this is why. And then you can make your own judgment on that. But Aston were too vague. There was kind of just this attempt to shrug it off rather than say oh, look, this is why we won't be dealing with it in the way you expect, or this is why we will. You know, there could there could have been more clarity there, I think. Yeah, well, it becomes a, a communications thing, doesn't it? And that's how you can control what's going on and get your point across a bit better. And there's been a few uh, weaknesses in that area for different reasons. I think, obviously, Aston Martin, there's a lot in that team whose hands are somewhat tied, I would say, when it comes to when it comes to Stroll. But it, it was just a bit needless, because you could, you could also, I'm not going to say spin it positively, but... You could say, well, it shows that he at least cared about his underperformance and you shouldn't take it out that way. It doesn't mean it's a good thing to see, but it's just context for understanding how it happened. You know, not a big positive, but there's ways you can frame it and tackle it and address it and say, right, yeah, if if he was happy to sort of a bit more quickly uh, 
close it down and the team say, yeah, we've taken a little bit of action to make sure that doesn't happen, it'd been fine. But it just got spun out and then the FI got involved with compliance officers and all that kind of thing. And that's where we end up. And you just sort of think, well, why has this had to happen? This could have been dealt with so much earlier. I had the same reaction as, as one of the points you made there, Ed. I, one of my takeaways was, at least he cares, um, which is, again, is another thing that's sometimes leveled against him. Does he really want to be an F1 driver? And so I do like to see, I don't like to see it come out in that way, but I like to see that this underperformance that has been going on for far too long does bother him. And then uh, I think what we can say is of all the people who have had to deal with this in some way, the fallout from it, actually the person who's done the best job in the end is Lance. You know, he 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 faced questions about it. He was willing to take more questions yeah. about it. He fronted up. Okay, it took him a day, but fine. Um, he, he's done he's done the apology. It's kind of ended up being everyone around him uh, are the people who've done a bad job. And like you say, Ed, have, have made this much more than it needed to be. It should have been something that was dealt with swiftly um, at the time, and then we all move on. It didn't need to be dragged back up, but that's that's a result of poor handling. Yeah, there's maybe a lesson in that in terms of what Lance can deal with and do and perhaps maybe if he's <laughs> if he's almost allowed to do things the way he wants to and respond to things in the way not be controlled because I imagine he feels quite controlled as well we don't really know but you can see why the scenario he's in could be tricky perhaps that's actually how you get more out of him and maybe that'll help in the driving side as well but uh yeah because because as we've always said there's there's real ability in there it's just a it's just unrefined which is why his f1 level is fine it's not an incompetent f1 driver by any means but he's you know he's, he's solid rather than uh anything more than that which puts him in the lower group so yeah interesting to see how things uh how things go there and whether that leads to any change looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's stay in the world of Mercedes. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. 
Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies, Ben, what can you tell us about its Austin upgrade? Is it one for Silver Arrows fans to get excited about? Well, potentially, uh, James Allison is playing it down a little bit in terms of immediate performance. Obviously, they hope to add some lap time or take off some lap time is probably the, the best way to put it. You don't upgrade the car and expect to make it slower, of course. But he's very clear that this is about next year, 2024. He described it as a bellwether for whether the team is on the right track in terms of their floor development. And all focus really is on starting next year on the front foot, as he put it in the media session we did with him in Qatar. It's doubly important to start the season well because the 2024 car and the 2025 car will be very closely related because obviously under the cost cap, etc., Everyone will be focusing on 2026 and the big rule changes as early as possible in 2025 and having to split resources. So if you make a mess of your 2024 car, you're going to be in big trouble for a couple of seasons. I found that really interesting. It's a really good admission. I think he's one of the first people to say that. The re- I, I feel like as this season has gone on, this issue of showing some signs of life before the big 24 rework is becoming more and more important for Mercedes firstly because the progress hasn't been good enough this year which just raises more questions of are you purely held back by needing to do a new chassis next year or do you actually still not understand the fundamentals of what these rules require and I think the pressure is growing on Mercedes there because McLaren have clearly understood a lot and you would hope or expect that they can take another step next year and although Teams will often tell us stuff or paint a picture for us that's more positive than reality. You do get the impression for the last couple of months that Ferrari are working it out as well. Not necessarily because they put the car on the track and it's quick every weekend, but they seem to have a better understanding now of when it's going to be quick and why it's quick and when they're struggling, why they're struggling. All the noises that have been coming out of there really since that Monza weekend where they they stuck their radical sort of low downforce special on and it worked. I've just liked what I'm hearing there of kind of they think, okay, now we get it. Now everything we do does what we expect it to do. I don't feel like we're getting that from Mercedes yet. So that's why this step seems really important for me. I I admire their honesty. I don't think they've they've tried to. Um, dress anything up this year they do tend to tell us when they're getting it wrong but at some point there needs to be a step because everybody else is starting to work it out and that's before you even look at the fact that surely Red Bull are going to take another step and move the goalposts for everybody over the winter anyway so at some point before 
we get to the point where the Mercedes has the new car, that the new chassis that supposedly fixes all the problems they can't fix right now, there's got to be something to give, well, to give them and their fans hope. Yeah, Allison was quite specific about McLaren. Now, he referenced Mercedes not making the very obvious, impressive progress that McLaren have made. So everyone's noticed that. You can't fail to notice it, obviously. It, his argument is that, okay, we haven't done that at Mercedes, but nevertheless, we've been charting a path through the season that gives us a very clear idea of what we need to do. So that's that's the bit that's untested. Maybe we'll get a glimpse of that in Austin with this floor. We have to take him at his word that they have charted this path and it's all it's all being stored up for next year, basically, to hit the ground running rather than uh, drip fed onto the car this year that gives you a baseline into next year. It is fair to say that where McLaren did their reset, which they had their light bulb moment or eureka moment over the winter and obviously launched saying, hey guys, we know we're going to be crap this year, but we've got a plan. And then obviously they began the reset, Baku, built on it in the summer and now reaping some reward from that. Mercedes' realisation came a bit later than that. They decided to start the season with the old car effectively or a version of it. Got to Bahrain, went, nope, this still doesn't work. Right, we need to change. And then obviously they've kind of done their baseline reset a bit later. Monaco it was, wasn't it, that they put the the conventional pods on, etc. And then they haven't really, they have made some progress, but they haven't had the kind of big launch pad that McLaren have had. So there's obviously more steps that need to be done, more fundamental things. And the pressure then will crank up massively at the start of next year. I sensed from talking to Alison, it's been a long time since I did a media session with him and he's always very loquacious, good talker, uh, quite interesting to interview, explains things very well. But there was, there was an atmosphere of tension, even with the media there, you get, sense that he doesn't do these things as often now and obviously he's been not in the hot seat again for, for very long but you sense the frustration is there with him he's very very competitive similar to Newey in just relentlessly wanting to win so the fact that Mercedes have been so naff for a couple of seasons will be hurting him a lot and you can feel that coming out in him having to talk about this car which he hates he hates that it's no good. He hates that the team doesn't really understand how to make it work. He wants to chuck it in the bin as soon as possible and just full charge into next year in 25. Uh, and that comes out really in the way way he talks. A lot of the guys um, who've been in the paddock more regularly than me over the last few years, they play. we used to play this game when Rob Smedley was at Williams. You'd always wonder who he was going to target. He would pick up on a on a bad question or a badly framed question and have some fun with that journalist. And he got more and more carried away with this game. It was quite a good bit of sport for him and for us to guess who would be the target. And now James Allison fills that role. All the journalists are wondering which, which question or which guy he's going to pick on for having charged in with a badly framed uh, question about how Mercedes are getting on. Uh, so I think he's he's trying to entertain himself and have a bit of fun while having to talk about a subject he just desperately hates because it represents everything that's gone wrong with Mercedes. We'll see if they've got the understanding necessary without the obvious barometer of, oh, we've made this step and we're here now compared to McLaren, we won't know. Um, I don't think we'll find out massively in Austin either. It will be more 
what the data shows and then we just have to wait wait for next year you know Mercedes have done all the talking they can do really now it's time for time for action isn't it they could take a leaf out of Ferrari's book and just say yeah we we under it's not it's not showing in the results, but we understand the car now. Don't worry. I've, I've think- well, even Ferrari, I don't think they necessarily have a perfect handle. You're right about Monza and that being a kind of light bulb moment for them with the low downforce package. But when we spoke to Vasseur in Qatar, he was asked, "Oh, how do you, how does he talks about his piece of paper? He has a piece of paper that you know. Not, I'm sure it's not a real. That one. He draws he the 2024 about, car yeah, on. This is where we're going to be. This is where the track ranks in terms of where we expect to be, and. He just means obviously on paper rather than actually having a, a list. I don't think he has a a, a a list of tracks like Toto does of like the worst ones. The Table of Doom. Uh, the uh, Table uh, of Doom. That's the one. That's the one. I don't think Fred has a Table of Doom. Uh, but he he was asked about Austin and he said, "I I just want to shut up because he doesn't want to make a prediction." But uh, he was asked in reference to Singapore, which obviously was a great weekend for Ferrari, and he admitted in this jovial answer that he wasn't expecting Singapore to be as good as it was so even though Ferrari definitely have narrowed those wild swings of performance over the year and particularly since Monza I don't think they quite still know from track to track exactly where they're going to be and obviously they have a similar body of work in front of them to Mercedes they need to start next year with a car that's much more under control uh, with a much greater spread of good performance across a greater range of ride heights and circuits than they do now. I think that's the key thing for those underperforming teams is that the excuses stop when the new car, when the new cars come out and they hit the track. What they can't do is those cars to come out and go, ah, well, it's not great, but it's the first steps. And then we're going to develop it through this year. I, I admired McLaren's honesty at the start of the year for a team to launch its car and go, this is a piece of junk. And then they mapped out a plan but the plan got tweaked a little bit through the year, didn't it? At first, it was like, oh, when the Baku upgrade comes, that'll be fine. Actually, what the Baku upgrade did was give them a platform to then build the rest of it on. So maybe, coming back to our earlier points, they just communicated it badly. But I was getting tired of McLaren being the jam tomorrow team. We've been <laughs> yeah. hearing it for years. Yeah. And then and then as, as we got closer to this, they're going, oh, well, you know, actually, we need the wind tunnel to come on and all that sort of thing. And Ferrari and Mercedes can't be doing that Uh a month into the new season they they they're both under massive pressure to properly hit the ground running in testing yeah and even mclaren was surprising themselves weren't they i mean zach brown who who definitely doesn't mind getting overexcited i would say was a bit nervous of andrea instead of talking up the austria upgrade so much before it hit the car so they obviously you know were really confident inside that team that this was going to be the big step that that pushed them massively up the grid to be fair to james allison with 2024, he was asked a question about, oh, you know, the baseline, the new baseline of the car and how long it might take to unlock potential from it. And he was having none of that. He was like, basically, you know, from first day of testing, whether the car's going to be any good or not. And his phrase was, the driver doesn't exactly tell you to spend your bonus, but they pretty much do. So they'll be expecting first day to know exactly how good that, that car is. Um, they won't be. He says if it's if it's well born, it doesn't take very long to unlock the potential. So if you hear any comments really from Mercedes, Ferrari, or anyone else about, oh yeah, this is it's it's okay, but we just need some time to understand and blah 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 blah. That's the first sign of big trouble again. I think it comes down to correlation, doesn't it? Because understanding is encapsulated in your simulation tools, 
And if there's something you don't know that you've missed, that is what leads to the the lack of correlation. So that's the uh, that's the interesting thing there, and the key thing uh, for Mercedes. You don't know what you don't know ultimately, and there will be various things they'll have needed to crack to unlock this ongoing potential. And if you miss one or whatever, then that can uh, continue the problem. But Mercedes are a very good team. They didn't have all the success they did for no reason. So for those who want to see as many teams up front as possible competing for wins, this uh, this will be a an important little indicator weekend, but certainly not transformative, as uh, as you've explained. Glenn, should we move to the world of Red Bull now? Because we've got to talk about Sergio Perez again. Mounting pressure. He's had three races without a podium. Interesting comments made recently by Christian Horner as well. Always has good support in Austin, and he's the star of the Mexican Grand Prix weekend, Perez. So can you see him turning things around and at least putting together just a couple of solid weekends to calm everything down? Well, he's not Nigel Mansell, so I don't think fans will give him a second or a couple of seconds a lap like Nigel used to claim around Silverstone. Physics <laughs> defying yeah. fans, that's what you need. Um, no, I hope He could do with it, though. Yeah, I hope for not so much Austin, but certainly on his home race. I hope for him and for the fans. That, that race, the atmosphere of that race is incredible. The turnout of Mexican fans is amazing. I hope for Checo and for them that he has a good weekend there. Even if the rest of this season is rubbish and he just he just can't pick it up, I just hope that something goes right there and he has a good weekend there and can send everybody home happy. I, I thought there were two interesting things that came out of the last race that suggested to me there is a a turning of the tide within Red Bull towards his underperformance. You mentioned the Horner comments there. I thought it was fascinating that... Christian said, look, we need to, we do need to have a sit down with him now. We've, we've got to fix this. And obviously all the championships are won this year. Red Bull's, Red Bull's cruising. Max could win it all on his own anyway. But what can't be forgotten is that Red Bull, for all of its dominance in previous seasons, has never had a one-two in the Drivers' Championship. And I think that's the last remaining thing they have to fight for now I don't think Max is going to give him any wins to help that happen if they're running one two but the team definitely want want to achieve that for the first time because I think there is there is another another element of greatness that you tick off if you achieve a one two it means everything has performed superbly so I just got the impression that they were fed up with how scrappy that weekend was the other thing that made me think, ah, oh, that's a change of tone, was his race engineer just completely losing patience with him for the track limits penalties. You know, normally I've always felt those two have a great bond where it's just kind of them against the world and no matter what goes wrong for Perez and how much pressure he may be facing from the outside world, his engineer's kind of always got him and he's always talking him up and it's kind of like, come on, you can do this, prove everybody wrong. Um, real fight, You get some real fighting talk over the the, um, the radio on that side of the garage. But when it was that comment of, come on now, this is hurting our race. It, it was like talking to a little kid who you've told to stop putting their hand in the paint pot or throwing things on the floor. And eventually you go, look, how many more times do I have to tell you? I'm your biggest supporter. I'm on your side and I'm fed up with you now. So yeah, I, th- I, th- I hope or I imagine the gap between these races has been good for him, but yeah, hopefully he can use the support that he'll get in, in Texas and in Mexico as a good thing. But it does mean more pressure and attention at a time when he's not performing. I have a little bit of sympathy for Perez on the specific track limits thing, because obviously that race was brutal on the drivers. 
Vasseur said something about how the track limits just generally in that race were, were unacceptable, all these penalties on the screen. I think he was talking more about the fan perception of it, you know, not being able to follow it rather than... The drivers should, should be, stay in the white line. Shouldn't then. be penalised for it. But in that race specifically, obviously, they were physically so drained, concentration was going, it was getting quite hard to stay within track limits. Maybe it was easier for Perez than others because his car's better, I don't know. Um, but it it wasn't a problem specific to him. A lot of the drivers, especially in the pack, where it was harder to stay on track anyway because you're following in the dirty air, were struggling with track limits. Gasly got pinged a lot, Stroll got pinged a lot. Um, so I have a little bit of sympathy, and and obviously Hugh Bird is not in the car, so he maybe he may maybe Perez didn't communicate how tough it was to his engineer, and maybe they didn't quite understand how difficult it was. Maybe Perez won't use it as an excuse. He was talking about being too low in the car, so maybe that was more a significant factor. I don't know, but more widely on the performance thing, I think there are two things really playing against him. One is Red Bull have wrapped up the two main championships they were focused on. So suddenly he becomes much more the focus of everyone in that team and everyone who's looking at Red Bull and studying everyone their narrative. Max. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Max doesn't care, obviously. He's like, <laughs> I'm just, just going to keep smashing everybody to death. But the wider Red Bull ecosystem is like, oh, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, we've, we've, we've done our job now, but what's this guy playing at? And I, th- I feel like previously the qualifying variance has been there, you know, not only through this season, it was there for a long period of last season too. So that's very much a known known for Red Bull that Perez isn't great over one lap, especially in this iteration of Formula One. But he's been getting away with it, even in terms of Red Bull's public messaging and Horner's Sunday night comments, because his race performances have been good and have s- largely salvaged the, the day or the weekend for Red Bull. He can still make the argument well his race would be easier if he started higher up the grid. But nevertheless, you know, he's been able to recover from the back end of the top 10 to third or sometimes second, you know, get decent points. But he's had two absolute stinkers in a row on Sunday. You know, Suzuka was awful. He was, how many front wings did he get through? Uh, it was just a, a nightmare for him when they expected with the performance Max had shown in the car that he would have, I know Suzuka's difficult to overtake, but he would have come through quite comfortably. And I think the same in Qatar. And Perez was just stuck going nowhere. And Horner said, you know, they expected him to score some points, a quite decent number of points. And did he get any? I can't, I'm not sure if he got any, maybe one. So I think now they're seeing like an extra degradation in Perez that's alarming them. It's like, I can't qualify the car. Also, now he can't race it. So then it calls into question, well, what is he there for at all if he can't even do that? You know, is the pressure of the pressure of the championship and trying to beat Max is really at the root of why he struggled so much from the pretty much the start of this season or certainly after the first five races but now is the pressure of trying to finish second also undoing Perez it's like a spiral that's getting worse rather than better I think they expected once the championships were done and the pressure in the team was off to an extent that Perez would improve his performance but if anything he's going the other way and uh I think then there's an element of Horner just being irritated in the moment on the Sunday. You know, they, it's so far below what they expected. He's just unable to contain himself. And and I think they also sense what we've been saying for a while now that, okay, it's fine while they're dominating. They can afford to carry Perez, but they've now they've sealed these championships. They're probably looking around going, well, McLaren actually is starting to put us under a bit of pressure on 
on tracks where we would expect to crush everybody. You know, Norris Norris thought he could have had a go at Max in Qatar if he qualified better. He was closer on race pace to Max than probably any time this season in Suzuka. George Russell thought the Mercedes was good enough to fight had they not crashed into each other on the first lap. And Horner even explicitly said, well, you can see each of those teams that they need to keep an eye on. have got a pair of strong drivers and Red Bull doesn't. And it's probably dawning on them, well, if Perez is going to be this bad... And next se- year, next it's the year, next year element, next isn't it? Year, that was yeah. the fascinating part of what he said. He referenced next, next year. year. He's gone, ah, yeah, we we can't carry him if if Ferrari understand their car as well as we think they do from Monza and make a big step. If James Allison is right and this bellwether of Austin shows that Mercedes are on the right track and they come out swinging and McLaren just build on amazing progress from this year, we know their two drivers are right at it. Red Bull, I mean, could be in trouble. Max won't be, but if if the wins are spread around and the points are spread around a bit more, the Constructors' Championship, which is the thing that Red Bull will really treasure, obviously, and that's the thing that everyone's bonuses, etc., are connected to, it could be a harder fight for them. So they really need Perez to step up. And I think he'd be in a lot more trouble if they, if they knew they had a nailed-on, 100% unquestionable alternative to stick in the car next year. And I think actually it will help Verstappen to have a stronger number two because he needs a second driver to take points off his rivals. Eighth, yeah, he yeah, needs a backup. Yeah, yeah. Eighth DNF, tenth of the last three results for Perez. So that's not really good enough. 30 points he's got on Hamilton in the battle for P2. So I'm hoping he'll get... Singapore on. we allow, obviously, because Red Bull messed up yeah, that yeah, whole weekend. Yeah. But the last two races have been nowhere near good enough. Yeah, they've been, they've been pretty dreadful. But, you know, he, he is a capable driver. I think if he just focuses, plays to his strengths tries to kind of string together a series of second places at the end of the year and there's every chance one of them could become a win. Wouldn't a Mexico win be a great boost for him? And yeah, this is, I think, a bit like um, Mercedes can prove that they're Max going in the right... Max isn't going to let him get a win, Ed. Max is well, not going to let him get a win. Well, he might not. You know, that there's, <laughs> there, there's always the chance of something going against him, some piece of bad luck or reliability or whatever. So it's not impossible. And that's the yeah, thing. Perez always needs to be their P2 because then he will pick up the, the pieces. So yeah, like Mercedes trying to get that good indicator going into next year, that's what Perez can get here. And I think if he can go into the winter after a solid finish, that will help matters and at least have arrested this spiral that he's been in. Well, Ben, for the second time this season, Daniel Ricciardo's back this weekend. He's had two outings this year at the Hungaroring and Spa before that hand injury. Given what we've just been talking about with Perez, how high are the stakes for Ricciardo? Well, I think the stakes for him specifically are quite low now because Perez being under increasing pressure is just generally good for Ricciardo. But that was that's not a new development. That was the case you know, when Ricciardo got the nod to replace De Vries. And he's come in saying, well, that's the drive I want. I'm tar- I'm targeting you, Checo. So anything Checo does to undo himself is only strengthens Ricardo's position. I don't think it really creates any pressure on Ricardo himself. It seems like Sonoda, who I would say outside of Verstappen, has probably overall been the strongest performing Red Bull driver in the roster. Lawson's a bit of a unique case, I think doesn't seem to be the favoured one. You know, he's there because of the the Honda patronage. I don't really see Sonoda being factored into the, the Red Bull racing equation, really. So that strengthens Ricardo's case longer term. And of course, he's got the drive 
locked in now, Ricardo, for 24. He's going to be at AlphaTauri. He's got a full season there to kind of impress Red Bull and show that he's ready to take Perez's seat. If Perez gets the stay of execution we expect uh, for 2024, of course, if Red Bull decides over the remaining five races that Ricardo is particularly impressive, I mean, I think they'll be frustrated that he's had this enforced break because they, they will want to use this next run of races to really properly evaluate where he's at. It's all very well him impressing in the simulator and doing a good job in a tyre test where no one else is driving, but they need to see him back to close to his best in the, the white heat of competition with everyone else. The first two weekends were solid, but Sonoda was stronger. So that's the reference. Ricardo needs to find more performance. He's not going to be nailed on in the second Red Bull seat if he can't beat Yuki. So his challenge is the same as it was. He's got to show this trajectory that he's getting on top of the cars. He's going to be stronger than Sonoda by the end of the season, matching him or beating him, and then continue that into next year. And if if they been Perez before that, well, he's, he's going to be the automatic choice now, I think, um, provided his performance level over the, the next five races is good enough. I think everything going on around Red Bull and Perez is good for Ricardo, and obviously he's got the seat for next year, so he's not trying to prove himself immediately. There is pressure, though, because Alpha Tauri's car got better while he wasn't driving it, and Liam Lawson did an amazing job in it for someone who hadn't been out of F1 for a while, had never raced in F1. He came in at the last minute and he's looked at the very worst, at his worst moments, he's looked respectable. Yeah. Most of the time, I think he's looked superb. So Ricardo can't come back in and go, oh, well, a bit rusty still, you know, got to get out of the McLaren <laughs> habits and all that sort of thing. Because this guy's come in who's got no experience and has was at Sonoda's level or close enough to it in enough sessions that mattered. So... I do think as much as Ricardo is going to be benchmarked against Sonoda, he's going to be benchmarked against what Lawson did in that car, especially because as things stand, Lawson's going to be on the sidelines next year. And right now that feels like an injustice. Yeah, there's still a lot of what you might call reputational damage that Ricardo has to undo to convince that he can adapt to this generation of cars and that he can be something approaching the driver he once was. You know, he's, again, with the McLaren stint, he was he was okay last year he wasn't completely incompetent but he really struggled so I think he probably will be putting a certain amount of pressure on himself to start making his case for Red Bull I think the chances of him being actually in a Red Bull seat next year are tiny I can't see them doing anything about Perez but he will be thinking right well if there's a chance in the middle of next year or for 25 he's starting to make his case now if you like but perhaps the fact that he's had a few races out means he almost gets a completely fresh start here as far as the the perception goes. But he's got five race weekends, so enough time to do something. Let's move on to Williams now, Glenn, because this is a big weekend for Logan Sargent, given it's his home Grand Prix. Yeah, I know he raced in Miami, which is actually even more his home Grand Prix, but this is the United States Grand Prix. Hasn't got a point. He's got some targets he needs to hit to be able to stay with Williams. They want him to hit the targets, but he's not done it yet. If he had done, they'd have confirmed him for next year. How close do you think he is to achieving what he needs to? Um, In my mind, he's very far away from it. There's not been enough progress through the season. You You do give rookies a bit of a free pass at the beginning, certainly, although the really good ones make an impression straight away. Um 
it makes to- what Williams are doing makes total sense. There is no there's no pressure on them. Their options. They, so they're going to wait until the end of the season to make a decision unless he does something incredible before then. And uh, they decide, OK, well, he's he's it's clicked. We're fine. From their perspective, there's no incentive to make a decision before the end of the season. Give him as long as possible to show something because your options, if you decide not to stick with him at the end of the year, are the same at the end of November and start of December as they are now. So Williams's approach to this is absolutely fine. I'm not convinced it's going to make any difference. I think if he was if he was going to be capable of having done something by now, he would have done it. I know Williams keep pointing to uh was it how good the qualifying lap was in Suzuka before he fell off at the end of the lap or something like that. It's like, well, he fell off at the end of the lap, so it doesn't matter what the rest of the lap was like. He was clearly too close to too close to the to, to the limit, maybe his own limit, um, before he made the mistakes. That's irrelevant. You, you can't do half a good job, uh, or in that case, about 95% a good job before you stick it in the wall. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't see why something should change this late in the day. F1 seasons are so long now, you don't get to the final run of races and go, oh, well, I'm still finding my feet. And to come back to Liam Lawson, he... He, I think he's damaged the case for Logan Sargent because he got in a car that also isn't great. It's kind of in Williams' territory, or at least Alex Albon Williams' territory, and he took to it straight away. So I think that has put more of a focus on you can't hide behind the rookie excuse for too long. F1's cutthroat, and if you're really good enough and you really deserve to be here for years to come, you might not be a future world champion, but if you deserve to be on the grid holding one of these 20 seats, you should have shown something by now. I wonder if Williams might need to change tack with Sargent rather than having this kind of, oh, yes, we completely believe in you. We really want you to succeed nurturing approach. Do they need to be harsher, show some tougher love? Maybe well, like here's a reserve driver contract. Well, just just some, I don't know, because what whatever's happening at the moment isn't really working. I think in his favour is, and I don't think this is just, bluster i think williams genuinely think he's got pace and this this narrative about the suzuka lap being really good until the last bit when he stuffed it i think that that has impressed them that he can go there and and perform that well in terms of pure driving similar in qatar and he was very close to albin in q1 that was a very difficult friday for everybody and in terms of the struggling drivers he was one of the more impressive in terms of going somewhere new in a difficult car in difficult conditions and pretty much matching his teammate. But it's all the silly mistakes. How is he going to cut them out? And he talked before the weekend about needing to dial it back a percent or two. And and James Vowles agrees with that. Now that's what they want to see. They want him to, re- to retain the raw speed that they think is there, but just dial it back slightly so he can stay on the road. I don't know if he can do that. That's That's... That's the big, that's the big question for him. It's a, it's a nicer problem for the team to have because you no, know, in the guy he replaced, the Tifi, I think, just wasn't fast enough, so it didn't really matter what they did. He was never going to quite in these cars, certainly, never quite get to the level of performance needed, or it was going to take way too long. Whereas Sergeant seems to be the opposite or the inverse of that problem. He's quick enough in raw ability for what Williams needs, but. He's driving too close to his personal limit all of the time to get there. 
and teams always say they'd rather have a fast driver that they need to calm down and have a slow driver they need to make quick and I think they've replaced the latter with the former in this scenario but it's still a problem for them and Lawson Lawson complicates matters in terms of showing what you can do as a rookie but I think you know he's surprised even Red Bull with how good he's been are they motivated to drop it in a, drop him in at Williams they they don't seem to be they seem to be quite relaxed about just having Lawson there as a backstop and then if something goes wrong with Perez and they need to bump Ricardo up or something goes wrong wrong with Ricardo and they need to replace him next year then Lawson can just be ready to go and plug in I think Red Bull's driver situation outside of a snap and is so has been so chaotic that actually to to have a bonus option that they weren't really banking on to now count on sitting in the wings is really quite valuable to them. So if what if they were to do some kind of deal with Williams, say Sargent just can't get it together and that seat comes open, they're going to have a recall in there straight away. You know, if they if they need Lawson, they're going to want him straight out of there at a moment's notice. Is that something that Williams is going to go for? I'm not so sure. So that strengthens Sargent's position. But nevertheless, you know, if he can't calm himself down, Williams can't afford the crash damage. So something's got to give in that situation. I'm just not quite sure yet what it is. I think it comes down to what I've said pretty much the whole season. It's just about trying to string together a couple of complete weekends, which I don't think Sargent's done by now. You don't expect that every week for a rookie by any stretch of the imagination, but you need it to happen a couple of times. Uh, And I think his target, probably if, if he can have even two out of the last five, where you just think, yeah, he's delivered his pace throughout, he's executed the race as well, he hasn't made a mistake at a crucial moment, if he can even have just a couple of those out of the last five, that'll put him in a good position given the alternatives and the fact that Williams doesn't want to change things. But yeah, it's asking a lot for him to do that. So ultimately it's in his hands, isn't it? That's what it. That's what all you ask for. He's got a chance to earn that drive for next year he's been given every opportunity so whichever way it goes I don't think there can be complaints let's uh, put it that way and finally Ben looking ahead to the Austin race how do you expect the competitive order to shake out Red Bull up front obviously I presume but is this another strong McLaren weekend do you think or another team be best of the rest I think they'll be up there it seems like their progress is now more genuine across a spread of tracks and corners rather than just being like high speed monsters which they are but I think there's a there's a wider performance window in that car now um, this circuit's obviously quite a mix compared to uh, Qatar and also Singapore where you've got very specific corner types that kind of everybody can can build their setup around in Qatar it was high speed longer duration corners in Singapore it was obviously short low speed 90 degree corners that closes the field up I think because it makes everybody's job a bit simpler whereas Austin is you know a massive variance you've got the the high speed Suzuka type first sector with a bit of slow speed at the start I think that's nailed on Red Bull and McLaren territory but then majority of sector two which is straights and slow corners that's probably where you'd expect Ferrari to be the strong strongest and also they were very good here last year so I think Ferrari probably have quite a good baseline to work from at this track specifically. And then the last sector is a bit mixed between the two, uh, which will probably suit the more sort of all-round Mercedes. They're a bit weaker in the high speed, but better in some of the uh, the other types. So I, I expect, because of the, the compromises and the variance, if anything, that will help Red Bull 
and it should help Perez because providing there's no mess up in the simulations, they've got the car that is best at compromising between all the different bits you need. It's a bumpier track as well than some we've had recently. So again, that that suits them. They've got the, the best working car over the range of ride heights that might be necessary. So I expect Red Bull to, Max to be way out in front, probably on balance. Maybe Perez has a better chance of getting things together um, because of those factors. And then I think it will be quite tight. I expect McLaren to be right in the mix for best of the rest, but I think Ferrari and Mercedes, for different reasons, will be right in that mix. Aston... I mean, you, you can't discount an Alonso special, but I think they will struggle a bit more. Alpine are in that no man's land. Maybe they'll be snapping at Aston's heels. There'll be kind of a battle between them for the, the third group. And then you just can't discount an Alex Albon or Nico Hulkenberg special to kind of squeak into the top 10. Yeah, and there's, of course, in that group at the back, there's that Hass upgrade as well to look forward to. That's Could be- work really well or it could be a mess. You just don't know, do you? Exactly, yeah, but that's going to be quite a substantial change. So we'll be taking a close look at that when that one breaks cover. And that battle for seventh at the back, I know it's only seventh, but that's quite a significant one with Williams, Alfa Romeo, Haas and Alfa Tari. Because well, some- somebody described that to uh, Kevin Magnussen as a little battle with Alfa and he he was only playing, but he kind of gave, gave them a cold stare and said, little battle this guy obviously for them it's huge and they were they've lost ground obviously because alpha had quite a good race in in qatar perhaps unexpectedly so so it's it's tightening up a bit that fight near the back yeah and it's massive because it's hugely influential financially yes those minor, those minor positions are much bigger steps than they used to be in the old commercial agreements so this is really significant especially with that capex raise they've had as well and glenn just to finish off when ben was talking about the the cota circuit it's a really well-conceived track, isn't it? How do you see Cota's place among the uh, the favourite F1 tracks? I must admit, I've always really liked it. I remember watching in the first free practice session in 2012, sort of the first half of the lap, so from the first corner up to the hairpin, and then in the second Friday practice session, the sort of back half of the lap. And I really like the range of it, and I think it's a bit of a modern classic, but I've always had that in my mind, so I don't really know whether everyone else thinks it's the same. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It's, it's a circuit that, uh, being one of the newer ones before f1 got obsessed with street tracks it i think it learned a lot of the lessons of the kind of tilkadromes that we got used to over the previous decade so it combined the kind of pointy corners at each end of a long straight which gives you good racing with actually if you want the drivers to like it you've got to challenge them in some other parts so yeah i think you've got the the almost Beckett's kind of S section that Ben Ben mentioned early on. You've got the long, fast, sweeping uh, right-hander near the end. So you've got got the kind of high-speed challenge in a few places, Um, but then you've got the other stuff. So, yeah, it's got that great range and and, and variety. Now, I don't think every track needs that. I like the fact that some tracks are just high-speed tracks, Um, and some tracks, as Ben said, some tracks you go to and you go, okay, you need slow corner speed here that's 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 fine as well but I think this is really interesting and I agree with Ben that I think it's going to play into Red Bull's hands because there's there's something for everyone on this track and unfortunately that means there's something that's going to expose everybody else's weakness at some point around the lap and that's that's why I think um, probably the fight behind Red Bull should be superb and you know I, I don't I don't think they'll line up at the end of Q3 in kind of two by two formation. I think all those three or four teams behind it, that's it's going to be a fierce 
fight. But I do think particularly over a race distance, the the Red Bull. Um, and I, I was going to make a joke, Ed, when you said, well, Red Bull would be out front and say, well, you're really sticking your neck out there. But as Ben <laughs> outlined, I, th- I think the, the track will particularly... It's not so much play to any Red Bull strengths because the Red Bull strength is that it's superb at pretty much everything. Uh, but yeah, I think there'll be something in there to expose everybody else. But yeah, on your point about the track, I think it, I would say it maybe doesn't get the credit it deserves. I don't hear that many people talk about it in the way you did there, Ed. You've obviously had the benefit that you've been there a lot of times and you can appreciate it from track side. But I do think it's a good one you do get some good racing there and you get enough that the drivers are pretty happy as well. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get tarred with the same brush that some of those newer tracks do, uh, which is a good thing. And of course, we should also note it's a sprint weekend. Again, this one, the first time I think Austin's had a sprint, so that slightly changes the game. Just that one free practice session on Friday, which will make life a bit more difficult for those with upgrades. So Mercedes and Haas will have to have a good initial session. Well, thanks very much to Ben and Glenn for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there on goings on in the world of F1. And also check out our other podcast, Bring Back V10s, of course, hosted by Glenn, our Formula E podcast, MotoGP, IndyCar, and the Race F1 Tech Show as well with the excellent Gary Anderson. And also check out our YouTube channel, both longer and short form videos i'm now packing my bags to head off to austin so stay with us for everything you need to know for the united states grand prix the athletic